Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. There are less than 700 ventilators in Dallas at large. So it's a secret number you're not supposed to know. Fine. You know what? Let the federal government come after me. We have 652 ventilators here in Dallas County uh, and, the, you know, the close surrounding area. Okay? At the best peak of Wuhan, right, when they were having problems, 6% of all cases needed a ventilator. We are on our way to 10,000 cases. Okay? We're on our way to 10,000 cases. That means we hit our 600 easily within the next week and a half. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. All right. Uh, wow. Those were some strong words that came out on Facebook a couple of days ago from uh, Dallas County Commissioner J.J. Koch, a Republican, the only Republican on commissioner's court, really just warning people about what is going on with the coronavirus COVID-19 uh, here in Texas. Uh, Jason Wheeler here again with you today. And Jason Whiteley uh, here as well. We're both social distancing, doing this uh, from our homes together. But we have a lot of folks we're going to talk to in this podcast. We're talking to Dr. Deborah Burks. She's the coordinator for the uh, White House Task Force on Coronavirus. She stands side by side with the president, with Dr. Anthony Fauci all the time. We're, of course, going to hear more from Commissioner Koch, who is very frank and very candid with us. We're talking to Sarah Phillips, who is a Texas nurse who's been on the front lines of a lot of, of health, uh, major health issues, Ebola, H1N1, SARS. And also on this podcast, we're talking to a guy named Glenn Martin. He's in North Texas. He is currently recovering from COVID-19 right now, Jason. Yeah, he's got some interesting things to say about how he turned the corner on this and some advice for the rest of us who haven't gotten sick. But uh, again, we're going to be starting off here with uh, Commissioner J.J. Koch from Dallas County, uh, who just unloaded uh, several days ago on Facebook about uh, what he sees as Texans not taking this virus seriously enough. Commissioner, you went on Facebook Live the other night and stepped outside your house, and uh, you're pretty hot and animated. Why in the world did you decide to walk outside and, and do that Facebook Live for your, for your followers? Um, you know, through the grapevine, if you will, there were some folks that heard of this shelter-in-place order, uh, were very upset about it. So essentially, I'm on my, you know, 20-some-odd minute drive home from Panoramic Circle, and uh, with someone that was a business owner and made it very clear to me that, you know, one, this was highly unconstitutional. Um, you know, he's never going to support me again, to which I said, I don't care. Uh, this is way more important than, uh, you know, getting reelected or any of that petty stuff. Uh, but he went on to make the statement that he was going to um, make sure that his employees were, you know, had their butts in their seats and I'm going to be there. Uh, you know, it said something to the effect of, you know, it's just a bunch of old farts that are going to, are going to die. I'm one of those old farts. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to listen to this tyranny. Um, heard a couple of other folks 
in that same vein. So by the time I was about to step into my house, um, it was probably the most effective thing that I could do for the betterment of my family uh, to vent a little bit uh, because I was, uh, you know, certainly disgusted by that type of um, short-sightedness. And I think, um, you know, I said, hey, <laughs> how about I go and, and share that with the good people at home because I think a lot of people um, are listening to um, some pretty poorly informed talking heads. Well, you know, so, Commissioner, we even heard from the Lieutenant Governor of Texas uh, the other day saying something very similar, that yeah. he's he's willing to put himself out there at uh, 70 plus. He is willing to take the risk and just keep the economy going and open and was sort of making the case that others in his generation might be willing to do the same. If you go and get yourself exposed, you necessarily become a burden on the rest of the people and necessarily you're, you're a sack of the virus wherever you are. So unless you are, you know, hermited up in a cave, um, it, you know, right after you, you know, get yourself exposed, um, you're a burden on the society. So there's no heroic effort anyone can take as an individual to start working and be the lone wolf in restarting the economy. Um, we, this is the one situation where we, you know, we all have to do it together in lockstep. That's not something we're, we're good at as Americans, but we better get good at it quick or else we're going to overrun our, our healthcare system. And that was essentially the argument that, you know, listen, this is not one of those things where you get to step out and do what you want. If we all don't fall in line here, uh, we're all going to suffer tremendous consequences. And Commissioner, you said on the Facebook Live that you're a big supporter of Governor Abbott, but you also noted that he's kind of leading from behind and letting counties like Dallas County take the lead on this. Should the governor declare a statewide lockdown for three or four weeks to try to stomp this thing out? Well, I think be, because you have a consent of the governed problem, right? So if you get too far out ahead of this thing without enough of your people um, agreeing with you, you're going to have a, a terrible enforcement problem. I mean, there's just not enough cops to keep everyone in place. So you're going to have to get a bulk of, you know, a, clearly a majority, if not a supermajority, of your population that agrees with this, and they're going to help you in enforcement. So, you know, there, there, there is that piece. I, I think, though, regarding the urban and large counties, I think the governor could have instituted a shelter in place uh, for every county over 100,000. I mean, we had tons of instances where, you know, we, we draw those lines um, and then, you know, kind of revisit it later after two weeks to see if some of the smaller counties need that type of aggressive action as well. We haven't heard uh, some of the hard numbers on this, and I think that that gets people's attention. When you actually broke down for everyone how many ventilators there are in the Dallas area, can you talk about that or is that something that gets you in trouble? Yeah, it does. Um, I, I, I'd ask the question that I'm allowed to ask, uh, you know, how many ventilators does Parkland have? Uh, and it was uh, 159. And, you know, you start doing the calculations, populations that these other hospitals serve, right? And, you know, I came up with, we, you know, we can't have more than, I think eight, I said 800. And then <laughs> someone grudgingly said, yeah, you're right. We have, you know, the number that I said, and I probably shouldn't say it again. And that's uh, Homeland Security has that kind of you're not supposed to know that, I guess. Um, and we'll, we'll see if I get in trouble for it down the road. But that, that's the case we're in. And, you know, some of the folks that I have talked to that are in that, I'm sending my folks to work camp. I asked them the question point blank. Give me your best guess how many ventilators we have here in the DFW region or you know, close enough in the outside counties that we can pull them in. And every time it's 10,000, 20,000, we have this many. 
that just it's not the case. I mean, the, you know, there's a there's a hundred and twenty thousand ventilators in the United States total before this crisis hit. If we were to do you know the, the division regarding our population into that number, we should have nine hundred fifty some odd. If it was just you know ventilators per capita. Um, we, of course, have fewer than that, and it makes sense because we have a younger population, um, you know, because we are you know, highly Hispanic, uh, we've got a lot of young families. I mean, our median age is way lower than a lot of areas of the country and then, you know, a lot of areas within Texas at large anyway. So it makes sense that, you know, we're not even at that optimal, if you will, 950. What is all this going to cost Dallas County alone? <laughs> uh, a lot. I mean, let, let's, you know, not be... There's, there's no reason to sugarcoat this. Um, the cost of doing business regularly, it has gone up because of you know, what's going on out there in the world. Um, the cost of the damaging effects of this on, on health care and the rest of those piece, pieces can be absolutely tremendous. And if you look at you know, what economists are kind of um, going through right now, it is not just that we're filling up our hospitals. We are depleting the human capital. Uh, and that's a nice way of saying we are going to kill some of our nurses and doctors because they are highly exposed to these viruses. They're necessary. So it's not like the flu where you, you know, be a first responder and you get a flu shot, right? Any projections at all for Dallas County, what it might cost this year? You know, if you were to just take the um, productivity loss and the cost of productivity loss, the higher cost of products, it's, it's probably already in the billions. Um, I mean, we have a, a one and a half billion dollar budget. Um, I think that it is, it's reasonable um, considering, you know, the, the economic losses, uh, the tax value losses, the business losses that, you know, this can easily um, cost us an entire year's worth of revenue, $1.5 billion. Can I, Commissioner, can you take us behind the scenes just a little bit? Because in some other places that have been really hard hit, we've, you know, seen that they've been putting up temporary hospitals, taking over motels, taking over vacant hospitals, uh, and even creating makeshift morgues out of ice rinks. Uh, do we have anything similar that is happening right now in, in Dallas County or in any of the surrounding counties or any counties in Texas that you know of where that kind of effort is underway behind the scenes that we haven't heard about? Yeah, I don't know about other counties. I do know in Dallas County, um, you know, we have a number of somewhat marquee uh, pieces of real estate, um, you know, particularly one that's right on 75. Uh, and then actually there's a piece of real estate um, by Presby Hospital. What kind of reaction did you get about that? You're the only Republican on the commissioner's court in Dallas County. Uh, you, you had some things to say, you know, about Judge uh, Jenkins, uh, Judge Clay Jenkins in the county. You also had things to say about the governor who is with your own party. Yeah. What kind of reaction have you gotten from people in general? And what kind of reaction have you gotten from elected leaders? Yeah, um, I think it's it, it's probably pretty easy in two categories. Those who know me were not surprised uh, because, you know, I, I, I can be, uh, you know, a bit of a hard charging guy. Um, and, you know, those that don't know me, some were, you know, very disconcerted that I wasn't using a monotone kind of flat, you know, I mean, this is not helping people. Well, <laughs> you know, they, they need the information and they, you know, the, clearly they have not been shaken awake yet. So um, I wasn't, you know, so concerned about the tone of it, rather it was getting the, getting the facts out. What kind of projections have you seen uh, when this might peak in Dallas County? We're all social distancing. We're, you know, we're all talking from home right now. 
what's it going to look like? When's that going to come? What kind of projections are out there? I mean, in, the, in a perfect world, you could ultimately see success in 21 days. That's not going to happen, right? We're not a perfect world. There's still going to be some folks popping around and, and the virus is going to you know, last on surfaces beyond that. But, you know, six, eight weeks is probably, um, you know, you do everything right policy-wise, that, that, that's a good case of this, but I don't think it necessarily has to be six to eight weeks of shelter in place. Um, if we can get things right with shelter in place and, and get a flattening, I mean, if you're seeing 10 and 15 cases, new cases a day, when you're in week three and week four, that's manageable regarding, you know, good quarantining, temperatures at every, every door, um, making sure that you're, you're tracking it well. When do you think that we might see uh, a hospital system overwhelmed in Dallas County, in Harris County, in Travis County, in Bear County, in some of the smaller counties around Texas? Do yeah. you think we will see that for sure? And when, if so? Well, we're going to see it play out disastrously in New York. Then it'll happen in uh, New Orleans, in all likelihood. I know the governor you know, did it shut down, but New Orleans um, is, is headed on that trajectory. Dallas County is actually on the worst worst trajectory of our sister counties, sister urban counties. I mean, we're, we're worse off than Harris County right now um, regarding our numbers and where we're headed. So, you know, we will be the first that suffers the hardest. Will we be uh, overwhelmed here, do you think, health system-wise in the next uh, couple of weeks? If, if, we're, if we are good at shelter in place, we're going to come close. We're going to crest right around the top of our resources. And hopefully, you know, since that crest will be coming more slowly, we'll have gotten not a lot but enough ventilators to kind of smooth things out um have enough people getting off ventilators one of those ventilator problems is you know a lot of those folks are sitting on a ventilator for two weeks so it's not like it's a day and out um now perhaps if there are you know good drug concoctions that get people off ventilators quicker then, then we'll be in better shape but um the, the length of time folks are on that is, is a problem too and, and part of the math so you know, we, we just got to create that space. But yeah, Dallas will end up being hit hardest. And if any county does have a crash, it'll be us and it'll be us first. Wow. Commissioner J.J. Koch, man, I appreciate the time. Stay healthy, stay safe, man. All right. So that is one perspective from one county commissioner here in Texas. Uh, kind of startling when you hear what he says about Dallas County being the place that's probably going to get it the worst and the first and the rest of the state will maybe calibrate its responses based upon what they're seeing in Dallas County in the days and weeks to come. Uh, Jason, you've actually been talking with, you know, if people have been watching these briefings every day from the White House with the president and Dr. Fauci and vice president, we've also seen Dr. Deborah Burks there uh, who's been updating us. And you actually got to speak with her specifically about Texas. Yeah, and it's interesting when you get a 202 number calling in, you think it's a congressman or something like that, but it was the White House that called yesterday and said, hey, would you like to interview Dr. Burks? I'm like, heck yeah, well, you know, who wouldn't? Yeah. They only offered it to us and they offered it to a, uh, an outlet in Pennsylvania and another one on the East Coast. We talked about several things. We had like a five or six minute interview with her. Um, I asked her, you know, how long it's going to take to have enough tests for everyone who wants it. That's really how you control this. Uh, she didn't have a clear answer. She said it's something they're really trying to ramp up now if you've seen these briefings. There was something else that I was really curious about she said in one of the briefings, or Dr. Fauci said in one of the briefings the other day, that people who are leaving New York City, which is one of the hot zones for this, wherever they go, they must quarantine. Well, you know, Jason, we have 
Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston, a major hub for United Airlines. We have DFW, a major hub for um, American. We have Love Field and Hobby Airports where Southwest are. They're still flying back and forth to New York. Not many flights, but they're still flying. I asked her, should passenger service to New York City be canceled until this is over, just like we did for Europe, just like we did for China. But there's something else I asked her as well, too. I'm curious, she's at the highest level, right? She's leading this uh, as a coordinator of the White House Task Force. What kind of projections has she seen as far as when COVID-19 might peak in the United States? When would that come? What would that look like? And I was surprised at what she said here. But we're encouraged by the curves of China, South Korea, and now some early evidence from Italy that they may in Italy themselves be able, with their strong mitigation efforts, to be able to see a change. But understand, it takes about two to three weeks to see the impact of your mitigation efforts because with cases that you see that come to the hospital, they were exposed probably two weeks or more ago. So that's why we're tracking this very carefully, both at the testing level and hospital admission level. So Jason, the big question is, is whether the uh, United States can replicate what China did, what happened in South Korea. You know, they were they were farther ahead. They had tighter lockdowns and they had more tests. That's the question. So for people on the front lines of this, the, the medical folks, they are really stressed out right now. There's not enough equipment. They're really trying to catch up to what all these other countries have been doing. And in fact, we're talking now with a nurse practitioner who is uh, here in Texas and who has uh, been through several rounds of different epidemics, including uh, two rounds with Ebola, uh, H1N1. She's she's been all over the world uh, dealing with these outbreaks. And we want to pick her brain on what she is seeing as far as what's happening here with this outbreak and what she thinks about how well we have prepared for this and what we're doing about it right now. And her name, Jason, is Sarah J. Phillips, a nurse practitioner who's been all around the world. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You said you're an infectious disease and outbreak nerd. What the heck is that? I am. So I'm a, I'm a nurse practitioner, but I don't really practice much sort of direct patient care. I have my master's in public health focused on infectious diseases. So I spent pretty much the last five years um, just responding to outbreaks around the world. What uh, kind of outbreaks are you talking about here? So everything from H1N1 in Dallas uh, 10 years ago uh, to Ebola um, twice. Um, I responded to the 2014-2015 outbreak in West Africa and then more recently um, the outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I've done diphtheria, I've done cholera, so just a variety of outbreaks. After you've been through all of that, do these start to kind of have a familiar feel? Uh, do you, does this feel the same as those felt before? Um, in a lot of ways, yes. I mean, sort of your outbreak response has some sort of major tenets that don't change, regardless of what the disease is, what the location is, what the resources are. You've got to test, you've got to identify cases, you've got to isolate them. Um, and so in that sense, a lot of it is very familiar. Of course, the scale of the coronavirus um, pandemic is, is significant um, compared to a lot of those other outbreaks. Um, and that's one of the major challenges is to scale those pieces of response that are so important um, to scale up to the sort of sheer volume that is required. Sir, so you got your graduate degree from Johns Hopkins. I don't want to downplay that at all, too. So you, <laughs> yeah, you know, I have my master's in public health from Hopkins. That's true. Well, 
Well, let me ask you this. Do you, following up on what Jason asked a moment ago, do, do, you, uh, do you agree with the public health response that's happening right now in the United States? I do not. <laughs> um, it's been really challenging for me to watch what's happening, especially knowing how well-resourced the U.S. is. And most of my responses have been in um, developing countries with very limited health infrastructure and, and very few resources other than sort of um, foreign aid that's come in to support the responses. Um, and so my expectations for how the response would go in the U.S. Um, were high because we are super well-resourced. Um, and I'm really concerned and discouraged by how the response has gone so far. We've really essentially missed the opportunity um, to really limit the spread of coronavirus in the U.S. Um, and I, I mean, at this point, we're left with really difficult decisions that had we chosen a different path two and a half months ago, I don't think we would be facing. Where, where do you see it as where we tripped here? A lot has been said about not having enough testing early on. A lot has been said about not closing down the whole country early on. Uh, a lot has been said about not stockpiling uh, a lot of this uh, medical equipment uh, for first responders and people on the front lines here. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the problem, the biggest problem yeah. here in the response? So I really think the biggest problem it was and is the testing issue. Um, because if we had very early on had adequate testing capacity nationwide, we would have identified cases very early on before we sort of seeded outbreaks in every state. Um, and when you have a thousand cases nationwide, you can stop the spread. You can isolate the cases, you can quarantine the contacts, you can do all the public health interventions to follow up. When you have 70,000 cases, you don't have the resources to do that anymore because each case could have, you know, three, 10, a hundred contacts and a solid public health intervention would require that you're following up with each of those contacts um, to ensure that they're not developing symptoms. Um, so that to me is where we really missed the opportunity um, to mitigate the outbreak. So at this point, testing is still really important, but um, we now are to the point where we're going to have a very significant outbreak. It's going to stretch our healthcare resources. The World Health Organization had some tests and, and offered them to the U.S. reportedly. Should the U.S. have taken those to at least get going, or is that story not even true? It's, it's not quite true. It's partially true. Um, so the World Health Organization, within a couple of days of China releasing the full viral genomic sequence, had developed a testing protocol. Um, and that was um, sort of published worldwide and available. The, the World Health Organization, I don't think actually offered the test to the US because typically the US doesn't need that kind of help because we are a very rich country and have public health resources here. Um, however, we chose not to use their testing protocol and develop our own. And as we all know, that's kind of where the major misstep was because the testing protocol developed at that point by the CDC, um, the test kits themselves um, were faulty. Um, and that mistake cost us weeks. Um, and you could see, I mean, if you compare sort of what South Korea did as compared to what the US did, um, that you can see two very different paths. South Korea, as soon as it was clear that coronavirus was spreading, 
um, they had a plan ready to roll out. This is partly because they were concerned about um, SARS and MERS in the years past, so they had thought through this. Um, but they rolled out a massive testing campaign. We're talking 10 to 20,000 tests a day for a much smaller country. You've dealt with these things before and seen viruses jump and just exponentially increase in, in numbers of infections. Sure. Uh, what do you say to people who are sitting and going, this doesn't seem as bad as everybody keeps saying it's going to be? I think risk is a different, difficult thing for humans to sort of judge, you know? Um, and I think as Americans, honestly, we have a bit of an invincibility complex. We think we're a bit untouchable or we can buy our way out of a crisis but we can't in this one. Um, and in a lot of middle America, it's rural um, and their access to especially critical care health services is extremely limited. So if this does spread to a lot of those areas, it's going to be very bad because they won't have access to critical care. Um, and the big cities where they typically refer critical cases, say a trauma victim or something, will probably be completely overwhelmed and not be able to accept referrals. That's the risk and the danger. Sarah, um, you've been in there for some really nasty things like Ebola though, right up in the middle of it. Does this virus scare you more than that virus did? Yes and no. I mean, I've never felt like fear or panic is a useful emotion. Um, certainly the uh, mortality rate of Ebola is much, much higher. Um, but it's also harder to get in the sense that you need contact with blood or body fluids. Whereas I don't know if I, when I go to the grocery store, if the cart handle was coughed on by the last patient or person who was at the grocery store and you can get coronavirus that way. So in that sense, the, the risk of spread um, is much higher and sort of more invisible. Uh, two questions. You kind of answered one of them earlier with Jason, but how do we screw this up and, and who do you blame? Um, I'm, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how and who, um, but certainly I have been very, very, very discouraged by the national level, the federal level response. Um, and I'm really concerned and frustrated by the blame shifting that's happening at the federal level. Um, our testing snafus were significant, as we've discussed. Um, I had no idea that our national stockpile of PPE was so small. Um, and that is something that should have been um, much more robust. Public health experts have been predicting a pandemic of this scale for years. We should have known this was coming, essentially. It was also predicted that it would probably come out of southern China and it would likely be a coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So I know that people have said that this, quote, blindsided us, um, but it shouldn't have. We do have this patchwork response. Every state is different. And, and worse than that, every county is different. <laughs> um, in Dallas, I have a, a lot of respect for Judge Jenkins. I think he's... Um, I think he's doing the right things. I think he's listening to public health experts. Um, I really appreciate his voice in this response. Um, but I'm concerned by that patchwork because it's not like we have a you know checkpoint entering Dallas County. So if a neighboring county doesn't have the same kind of controls, then it's really hard to suppress the spread of coronavirus. Do you see yourself on the front lines of this at some point when you're telling us how drastic this, uh, you expect this to get? Do you see yourself 
signing up to get back in there? I would, although I, I think that I would probably be better utilized in sort of coordinating an aspect of the response um, because I, that is kind of where my experience lies in coordinating responses to outbreak. Well, Sarah, I'm glad there are infectious, infectious disease and outbreak nerds like you, self-described, you said. So <laughs> thank you for, for what you do and glad we have people who are uh, you know, so knowledgeable about this, especially when we need it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So again, uh, we hear that takeaway there, Jason, that uh, you know somebody who's seen this kind of thing, has been around a while, and is familiar with these things says that we should be probably doing more, and we should have been doing more much earlier as far as staying apart and getting those tests done. Getting the test done, though, uh, from a patient's perspective, can be a difficult journey. We've heard from a lot of people who've had a lot of trouble with that. Yeah, and she also mentioned, uh, once we got the call, Jason, I want to make sure our listeners know, she might be going to New York City to help set up some of these stand-up hospitals and, and work maybe as a coordinator up there, too. So she has responded to things all, all around the globe, and it looks like she might be responding to the hot zone in the U.S., which is up in New York right now, the major one where so many cases are. But we also, uh, I got a Facebook message the other day from a friend of mine who said, hey, have you talked to any... Um, COVID-19 survivors, essentially, mm -hmm. people who are experiencing it. And there are a lot of survivors. The majority of people survive this. But I said, no, you know, do you know somebody? And she told me about a guy named Glenn Martin. He's 60 years old. He lives in uh, Tarrant County. And I started texting him. And he said that last week he was in the ICU with a fever, with shortness of breath, and, you know, a, a little concerned about what was going on. He thought this might be a sinus infection, but mm -hmm. it didn't go away. So we called him up. Hey, Glenn, how are you right now, man? I am uh, much better. I mean, it's been uh, about a week and a half now, and, and it's uh, steadily improving. So you Glenn, walk us through the process of what it has been like for you. When did you first know you were sick? How did the testing part of it go? And what have the symptoms been like? Well, back on March 11th and 12th is probably when I noticed I had a slight cough, but I, I didn't think much of it. And I think at that time, I think all the, sh the cruise ships were out, out in the Pacific and, you know, and it hadn't really hit land as far as, the, you know, I knew at least. So you get to the ER and what happens, Glenn? What do they say? And, and what's your reaction to what they tell you, man? Well, they, they took me into ICU right away and they checked my oxygen level and it was low. So they put oxygen on me. They, they uh, did a chest x-ray. And they had said I had spots on my chest that, that uh, look common with, with uh, what they're seeing with coronavirus. So they, they wanted to go ahead and test me. So it was probably about 1 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday when they, they finally tested me. How are you doing now? Well, that's the odd thing is on the, the 21st, I was having a hard time breathing again. So I went back up. to I, I, would, I was talking to the ER uh, nurse, and she said, come back up. So I went back up there about 9.30 p.m. Saturday on the 21st, I believe it was. And they said that uh, I, I was, it seems like I was on the up to upswing of, of uh, getting over it possibly. And, and maybe the reason why I was having a hard time breathing is because I was coughing so badly that day and mucus and all that stuff, um, that that's maybe why my lungs were hurting. How do you think you got this? I have no clue because I hadn't uh, flown out of the country. I mean, I, I did fly to Chicago back at the end of January for five days, and that's it. I mean, and I haven't 
I mean, I've done nothing other than work and come home. So I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, could, can you give us any kind of indication as to what this is like compared to other times that you've been sick in your life? Well, I mean, I get, I get a sinus infection a couple times a year. So, I, I mean, when I was, had that little cough, I was thinking, well, it's probably a sinus infection, infection coming on. Uh, the, it's the, the difficult, difficulty in breathing that was uh, the biggest issue. And because that's, a, that's, a, that's totally uncommon. I think, honestly, people are afraid of this. Were you ever frightened at all when you were diagnosed with it and when you were in the hospital for the first and second time? Well, I was a little shocked, uh, but I wasn't scared. Uh, I mean, I could, I can over, I can beat it. Yeah, and then when I, like I said, when I got that that hydroxychloroquine and I, I started taking it Sunday afternoon, uh, Monday night I had the highest fever I'd had during this whole time was 100.9, and Tuesday morning I woke up and it was like someone hit a light switch, and I woke up and I was feeling good. I didn't have a fever or nothing, and I've been going ever since. Wow. And the hydroxychloroquine is an anti-malarial drug that's um, experimental to create to, uh, to treat coronavirus. The other one Correct. is rhamycin for people who are listening to this. It's an antibiotic <clears throat> for respiratory infections. So those two, they're trying to, doctors are trying to figure out how to treat it, and that's kind of one of the cocktails they're using right so now. What is your message for, for other people, people who haven't gotten sick yet? Uh, what would you say? Just uh, keep your distance from other people and you know, do the best you can to, to uh, take care of yourself. Um, and stay, I mean, stay positive that you can, you can do it. You can overcome, overcome it if you do get it. Glenn, you, you showed us the letter you got from Tarrant County. The letter you got from Tarrant County shows that officials will monitor you daily until your symptoms go away and you've had two negative test results. How do the how does the monitoring happen every day? And have you had two negative test results yet? Well, that's funny too because I called them yesterday and I said, "Well, nobody calls me," and they said, "Well, you already have it, so we don't need to monitor you until until it's time to get you uh, retested." But they're testing, you know, or they're uh, monitoring the people that I ca I came in contact with. They're doing that every day, but the, you know, it's like forget the guy that's got it. Um, which is fine. Uh, that's fine. But uh, I'm trying to get them to retest me hopefully today or tomorrow. Glenn, we keep hearing about people who the, the most severe form of this comes, you know, several weeks after they are infected. Do you, do you think you're out of the woods at this point? Have you heard anything like that from doctors? Are you still worried that this could still take a turn again? The, the thing that I'm worried about is I, I've seen many people on TV saying that it's a five-day uh, prescription that they, they put you on the hydroxychloroquine for five days and, and the other one. And they only put, it, put me on it for two days. So, I mean, I had great results, but I'm just, I'm a little concerned that was that enough? Is it going to come back? Is it not totally gone yet? I don't, you know, I don't know. Glenn, what are you doing differently right now? And what are you going to do differently in the next few weeks, few months? Uh, probably the same thing. Just, just kind of keep my distance and make sure keep my hands clean. Even before this, I mean, I wasn't touching doorknobs, handles, elevator buttons. I mean, I, I would put my hand in my co my coat sleeve, because I, I because I didn't want didn't want any germs. And if I go to a grocery store, I mean, I take my own wipes with me and I'd wipe the cart off. 
So, I mean, I, I'm not a germaphobe, but I, I, I was always cautious of things like that. Boy, so you were careful and still right. uh, it happened to you. Uh, we, we spoke with a medical professional a while ago, Glenn, and she mentioned that here in the U.S. we tend to feel kind of invincible, like we can work our way out of these things, we can research our way out of these things, we can buy our way out of these things. Has this changed how you view healthcare and being here <coughs> in the United States? I think we always just think that we're going to be okay. Yeah, that's exactly true, though. I mean, the United States, we are, we're just a bit arrogant when it comes to our health. And we do have the best health care in the world, of course. I mean, I've talked to people in other countries, and it's really sad what they're, they're dealing with. I mean, uh, it's unbelievable. Any idea, Glenn, how much this is going to cost you? No, because uh, I haven't seen the hospital bills yet. So I would imagine it's probably four or $5,000 out, out of my pocket. Um, Loss of work. I don't. I don't know. It is good to see you making a rebound here. Thank you. Uh, we'll have to check in with you down the road. Uh, keep getting better, man. Keep getting stronger. All right. Thank you very much. All right. It's uh, you know it's good to hear those survivor stories as well because you know we we hear about the ones that uh, go tragically uh, mad and you know we've been seeing the the death toll mount. Uh, it's good to see people who are making their way through it, even though he's not out of the woods totally yet. We're going to keep on checking in with Glenn as we go forward here. Yeah, and to reiterate, like you said, too, so many people, the majority of people survive this with mild symptoms and, and, you know, don't require any hospitalization. But the concern is for those who do, might they overwhelm the healthcare system we have here? And Jason, uh, our, our listeners might be able to tell we had a few digital hiccups in there. We're trying to social distance. Thanks for listening, guys. We're going to try to do this at least twice a week right now as we try to just deliver as much information as we can from people who are actually on the front lines of this. So we appreciate that. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.